Hello and welcome to the Talk Neuro to Me podcast. Today we are releasing a recording from the 2019 International Symposium in Clinical Neuroscience, a board discussion called Path of Excellence. The panel was discussing different models of practice for those who are applying clinical neuroscience in their practice.、Enjoy. Hi, everybody. So, for the Path of Excellence, we're going to have a panel up here. And the purpose of this panel is to give you guys opportunities to speak with some of the experts in regards to different types of practices. So, I'm one of the faculty advisors for the Carrick Institute, and it's a question that I hear a lot about. How should I set up my practice if I want to do X, Y, or Z? And we have a lot of young doctors or people who are soon to be doctors who、uh, call all the time.、Uh, so, we want to give you guys an opportunity to ask、uh, the panel different types of questions, whether it be about Uh, clinical questions、uh, in regards to maybe、uh, the way they set up their practices or advertising or marketing questions or different types of that. It's going to be rapid fire as quickly as you can. We're going to have one mic out here and one mic out there, and we're going to quickly get them on stage and then give you guys a chance to get your questions up to them and hear their different types of answers. Okay, guys? So, to the panel up there, we're waiting for one more for Dr. David Clark. Uh, as quickly as you can, can you please tell us your name, where your practice is, and kind of what you specialize in, which is going to go down the line? Dr. Mark Ellis. My practice is Georgia Chiropractic Neurology Center, which is fortunately still in Georgia.、Um, traumatic head injuries, vertigo, POTS, and any type of a pain syndrome. Matt Antonucci, Plasticity Brain Centers, Orlando, Florida. We specialize in intensive care models, the tertiary referral center for chiropractors,、uh, functional neurologists, and medical doctors.、Uh, we see our patients for five days, all sorts of different、um, complaints,、uh, and we see patients around the world and we refer them back to their providers、uh, with a care plan so that they can cross the finish line, whatever their health goals are. Dr. Matthew Wirth.、Um, I'm the owner of the Midwest Institute for Neurological Development in St. Louis, Missouri.、Uh, we're one of the largest neurodevelopmental、uh, disorder clinics in St. Louis. I'm working with other doctors in the、uh, pediatric and、uh, OT and PT areas, as well as some of the hospitals. And then I also own Missouri Brain and Spine, which works with people from the ages of 18 on up with other types of neurodevelopmental issues. Hi, I'm Dr. George Bernbach, and I'm over in Redmond, Washington. We have a clinic over in Redmond, Washington, which is functional medicine. But I work with about 300、uh, chiropractic clinics and medical doctor clinics and dental clinics on practice development, practice modeling. And I teach、uh, public speaking and leadership and lots of other things. And I'm Dr. Glenn Zielinski. I own Northwest Functional Neurology. We're in Portland, Oregon. We do anything and everything functional neurology. We do intensive models and all the kind of stuff that everybody understands.、Um, George and I are here because we are all about trying to build this profession. We're trying to create ways to take all the people that, have, that are sitting in this room and within two or three years have every single one of you guys have a seven figure practice. I'm Jason Saunders. I have a practice, it's Core Therapies in New Jersey. Uh, we have a lot going on there. We have eight different chiropractors. Some do more traditional chiropractic, a few of us more functional medicine. We have a funk neuro. We do like high dose red light therapy, hyperbaric oxygen.、Uh, we combine a lot of those different therapies for different people for different issues.、Uh, we'll, just like these guys, I'm here actually representing OxyHealth, which is for hyperbaric oxygen. And we also help clinics build. Um, hyperbaric businesses around their practice, trying to incorporate not just a tool, but also a business around it.、Um, you know, trying to improve people's、uh, income while also helping people get better results. 
I'm Carolyn Bolt, and I'm with Crossfields, and I am not a chiropractor, but I'm very passionate about the chiropractic profession, and I want to see it expand and grow. I know it, what it's done in my life. Um, we build chiropractic offices. We specialize in helping chiropractors be more successful because a well-designed office is a very key to your success. And most chiropractors don't understand how to get there and don't know how to get there successfully. So we've developed a five-step process to help our chiropractors get there, and we do chiropractic offices all over the country. So glad to be here. Thank you very much. So uh, in a moment, I'm going to open up the mic to the audience and uh, give you guys an opportunity to ask the panel questions in regards to business or clinical questions. But I'm going to lead off with the first question, uh, so if I may. Um, so I'm one of the Karakatsut faculty advisors, and I get to talk to either students who are about to be doctors or doctors uh, Monday through Friday all day long, and it's, uh, I enjoy the job. It's great. But the number one question I get is, hey, there's all these different ways to practice. I see people doing intensives, the slow intensive, the, the, the short intense intensive, the pay-as-you-go, should I do nutrition into it? Um, and people seem very, they don't know how to choose which one they want or know enough about them to kind of, it's an area of confusion. So if I, was, if I could ask the panel, what model do you choose? And very quickly, if we can go down the line, what are the pros and cons to the model that you either use or see in the doctors that you uh, help or work with? So we do all the above, honestly. And I, I, I think that especially if you're new to it and you're first building things out, a little trial and error is totally okay, in my opinion. So uh, we have, depending on the intensity typically of the, the case and who we're working with, uh, we do have some people who pay as you go. Primarily, especially for obviously the more complicated cases, we definitely do more of a program approach. We don't do as much of the intensives. We do do some, but primarily we manage cases over three months or seven months or 12 months. And it's more of like a concierge type version where we give a lot of attention to people when they're in the office. We also give them a lot of access to us when they're not in the office to help their, their different areas of whether it's a nutritional issue or a neuro rehab issue. Um, so we do a little bit of combination of all of that. Does that basically answer that? Um, we do essentially the same thing. We'll, we'll take whatever is necessary to move the case forward and adapt our model to fit the needs of the patient. Um, that said, I don't really think the model itself is the important piece. And I'm pretty sure that George is going to go off on that when I hand him this mic. Um, it's not really about what model you're just doing to practice with. It's got more to do with how are you communicating what you're trying to accomplish with the patient so that the patient can move forward, so you can build rapport, so you can build a system, and you can have a positive patient interaction that's going to be what allows you to build your practice. So when you're modeling a practice, the model itself doesn't matter to the patient. What they care is getting better. What they're looking for is results. You're going to go back to the research to see which one is going to benefit the case best, okay? But you have to have the layout of the practice and the baton passes between the handoffs of the staff members to make the practice run around your care program. In some cases, you'll be able to do three-day intensives. In other cases, you'll run five. We've got clients doing both. So in Glenn's office, we tend to do five-day intensives against ambulatory care. So we'll either see them twice a week for a while and then bring them in for an intensive, or we'll go straight into an intensive depending on the case. Whether you're doing a two-day intensive or a four-day intensive, it comes down to the case modeling. And this is where doctors mess it up because they start thinking that they have to do one model instead of just building a modular office that can handle anything they decide to lay out in the review of findings. 
Uh, how do I practice? Solo practitioner. I have no uh, treatment staff. I do all the treatment myself. I charge accordingly, though. Um, I'm kind of a neurotic person when it comes to that stuff. I don't really trust anybody to do it as well as I can. I'm just going to tell you the truth. I mean, so I don't farm it out. If I had somebody came in and I trained them, you know, then maybe I would do that. But it's just not how I do it. How I, I also like to have freedom. So, um, you know, I typically only treat patients from about 10 to 4. Um, most weeks, Monday through Thursday. Some weeks, just Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But that's because I, that's the life I want to have, you know. Uh, I don't want to be there from 7 a.m. till 6 p.m. That's just that's just something I learned a long time ago is not conducive with my own mental health. So I don't I don't do that. The cons are obviously there's somewhat of a limit on how big the practice can grow, but I don't want to have a multi-million dollar ten office. I just, just I, my my nightmare is managing people. Uh, it's just so my own little neurosis is I'm not going to really hire anybody that I have to manage. Like the one uh, lady that works for me that does front desk, she's fantastic at what she does. And I always told her when I hired her, I don't want to micromanage you. I want to tell you how to do the job. I want you to do it right, and I don't want to talk to you. I want you to, I want you to prove to me that you can do the job, and I don't want to, you know. And it, sometimes you got to find people like that. Sometimes you got to train people like that. So, like the the con to what I do is, uh, I don't have associates. So if I'm not there, then you know people aren't getting treated. But I know that. Do you guys think that answers the question? Having two offices, um, I have probably a lot more staff than. David here. <laughs> and unfortunately, with staffing comes problems, and I'm sure all of you know that. As far as intensives or the rehabs and how we do cases, sometimes we do intensives. Um, patients who have had strokes, there's time issues involved in that. So to take somebody who had a stroke, work with them for two weeks and say, okay, you're on your own, I don't really see a result with that as well as I do as if we took it out over maybe 16 or 20 weeks where we're doing stuff in office and outside of office. Um, pros and cons in practice, I work a lot more hours than him as well, and we have about the same amount of hair. <laughs> and um, I love working with kids. Um, unlike some of the kids that uh, Dr. Clark was discussing earlier, we do some sort of screening procedure when we meet with the parents the first time. If the kids are violent, uh, we often don't take them on. Um, I don't want to get bit. I don't want to get hit. Um, so there, the severity really depends on how well we work or how much we want to work with the kids who are severely autistic. Now, the nonverbal ones who are severely autistic but they're not combative, absolutely all day long. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow. Okay, so I couldn't let off that. Uh, we at uh, Plasticity do the five-day intensive model. Um, as they said, there's no real model that you should do in your practice, but that kind of is what fell in our laps. Um, we originally opened up saying, uh, well, it's maybe four years ago now, uh, we opened up saying that we focus local, but also make sure that we're not limiting local. So we uh, did a bunch of Google uh, search optimization, uh, Facebook ads, things of that nature. Um, and what ended up manifesting was a five-day uh, practice three times a day. And uh, kind of the absolute antithesis of what Dr. Clark does. I mean, we uh, I put in... Well, I was going to say the antithesis being that I probably work 70 hours a week. And uh, what are, where I was going to go with that is the intent, the cons of the intensive model are both... Uh, are, are there. So it, I kind of equate it to flying a jet. Uh, you're moving at hyper speed. Any little move in the wrong direction is a catastrophic move for the patient. Um, but a move in the right direction ends up at a really great result. 
but the the collateral damage there is on the staff, on the providers. It's very difficult to run a five-day, three, uh, three times a day practice, in my perception, uh, when somebody has to get sick on a Monday when you do your intakes. There is a certain percentage of your practice that can't be treated. Um, if a patient doesn't show and you're accounting on them to be there for an intensive from a business model, that's a big hit to your top and bottom line. Uh, so it's kind of unforgiving in the model, and um, that's why one of the things that uh, we're really trying to focus on is developing really robust systems, kind of like Dr. Birnbach, Dr. Zelensky are doing, because if you can systemize something and you can pass the baton from, from employee to employee, and you can be very dexterous, and uh, all of your patients can work well with your employees, you can kind of have a well-oiled machine. Um, and of course, some of the, the pros of doing a five-day model are... Uh, kind of what Dr. Wirtz just said, it's a five-day model. We do see a lot of patients, uh, for example, uh, this, in the past two years, we've seen close to 180 children that have drowned in swimming pools. They're not going to get 100% better in five days. But the good part about that is the collaboration that you get to do with other providers. So we've set up systems that allow for check-ins and communication bi-directional. We can uh, consult on examinations. We've got secure video conferencing options so that we can manage patients with other doctors from afar and really watch those patients grow under somebody else's care. So uh, there are pros and cons um, to that type of model, but in the end, I think that uh, since we're all talking about our pathologies, my ADHD just allows me to see new patients every single week, complicated cases, um, and it's something really refreshing on Monday and something real gratifying on Friday. Mine's completely diverse, so I have people who come in, you know, from other countries and stay for various periods of time, and then I like to do a lot of musculoskeletal work and a lot of fascial work. It's just a personal joy of mine, so they might come in for 15 minutes, whatever, once a week, twice a week, I don't know. What I would suggest for you, though, uh, some of the younger people, is to speak with someone like Dr. Zelinsky or Dr. Bernbach, find what you love, help, get somebody to help you model your practice off of that. Also, um, Carolyn didn't grab the mic, but I can tell you she designed my office, and also Dr. Antonucci's. And your space will also dictate what you're capable of or not capable of doing in a therapeutic model. So it's one of the best things. She came in, she resolved some serious problems that I had with the space. She set it up so I could have wheelchairs moving around and multiple patients and sound sensitivity and all these different things. So I would suggest to think about what you love, talk to some business people who can help you model your practice off of that, and then make sure that your space uh, is designed well to fit the model that you want to create. Thank you to the panel. Uh, I have a question here. Hello. So I'm a physical therapist and was introduced to functional neurology in September and have kind of dove in hook, line, and sinker, and I love it. So my question to the panel, super quick, as a newbie into this area, what would be one word of wisdom you would pass on to us because when you come to something like this and you shadow at some of these clinics and then you come into this hall and you see all this really shiny beautiful technology that does all this stuff it can be a little bit overwhelming as a new person so what would be one word of advice you could pass on to us uh patience patience with a t or a c both patience and patience um, I would say master your observational skills. When all that equipment goes down, when your power goes out, when 
something goes wrong, really, really, really focus on your observational skills. Dr. Carrick, I mean, this makes 10 years I've been following him around, and he always says, uh, make sure you could do whatever you do in the desert, in a parking lot, wherever it is, because your eyes, your hands, uh, that's really all you should need to be able to do this. So the technology is great because it allows you to capture, record, it allows you to show what you saw to your patients. Um, however, uh, in the end, you still need to observe and do the interpretation of that information in order to help your patients. I would agree 100% with uh, Dr. Antonucci. You do need to be able to go ahead and be able to find this without the technology. Some of us have um, financial restraints that don't allow us to purchase all that technology. And knowing how to use it in a reasonable amount of time and getting patients through is sometimes more difficult. Um, but I'm all for technology. We have it in the office, and we like to have something objective that we can show the patient, as well as other providers since we work with physical therapists, ODs, and pediatricians and pediatric neurologists as well. Uh, test equipment is no substitute for clinical acumen, which is just what he was saying. You've got to be able to observe it because what you'll see is some people, they just now depend on, well, what, what piece of equipment do I need to tell me what's wrong with this person? And that's really kind of the backwards way to do it. So that's my suggestion is work on your stuff. Spend your money on you. Um, take a week and go down and hang out with them, right, before you plunk 10 or 15 grand down on something. I'd rather you spend that money spending a week at plasticity seeing people that are really sick than spending money on equipment. That's my thing. If I had to give you one word, it would be transparency because – your, your clinical skill should be there, or of course, work on your clinical skill. But when it comes down to patients, every patient shows up motivated. They want to change for the better, right? No one starts a workout hoping they don't get in shape. No one starts anything hoping it goes poorly. But you have to be able to have a transparent conversation with people because everyone shows up motivated. The only thing you have to worry about is where they lose motivation. And the only three places they lose motivation is clarity, purpose, and attainment. I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to do. I don't know why we're really doing it. And I'm putting in the work, but I'm not getting the gain. So the more you can be transparent with your story, visual linear language, just like you're walking them down a path, they'll stay. My practice has a 10 and a half month new patient waiting list. We only work 22 hours a week and it's a million dollar clinic. We take five months a year off. The reason isn't because we spend a lot of money on marketing. It's that no one ever leaves unless we push them out on a once a year, once or twice a year schedule. It's, we're always transparent with the reason why we're doing what we're doing and they buy into that as a relationship model. And whether we see them once every three years or once every three months, eventually, it all stays together. So transparency. Um, I'm going to expound on that observation thing. I think everybody, when they start learning functional neurology, they get really severely bogged down in the minutia. What did that eye movement mean? Did that head tilt change? All those sorts of things, right? And those are the sorts of observations that you need to ultimately be able to get really good at this. But when you're first starting to, to make changes with patients, you just want to focus on the globality of what just happened. All right? Don't get sucked into what just happened with that eye. Although obviously, that's where you want to be. That's the level you want to get to. But when you start making changes, you just need to be able to observe whether or not that was a positive change. And that, and that requires being able to look at the entire globality of the patient. People start learning, you know, they're, they're, like, they're, they're checking a reflex. They want to see a change in that reflex. And they miss the fact that, you know, the patient just developed a big spasm and all these other things happen in the meantime because they were focused on the minutia. 
or they miss the fatigability. And this is probably key because as you start getting into this stuff, fatigability is the essence of all of what we do, right? They miss indicators of fatigability. And frequently those indicators are an emotional event, a change in the patient's countenance, you know, a change in affect, a change in something along those lines. So just try to look at things from the perspective of this is what I did. Did, was that or was that not positive for the patient? And if it wasn't, stop, and then stop and figure out why. I would say implementation and practice. I think there's a lot of people in this room and every other seminar that I go to where we have information and knowledge that we're not using or toys in our office that we're not using. And some of that comes down to either confidence or practice or, you know, just be not being confident in our abilities, I'm not sure. But I think like what, what he's saying, you know, we, we get bogged down with all this detail and then we just get frozen and then we start to do what we're comfortable with instead of what we're learning and trying to develop. And ultimately, it's all this new information that you're in this room learning that, you know, ultimately you need to learn how to implement that into your practice in which model of any of ours that we're using, whichever one works best for you, you know. But start practicing it, start using it, start implementing, and then let it grow from there because that's where the magic is. So I just want to speak to you are going from where you are now to changing and just understand that whatever you're changing into, when people walk into your space, that needs to resonate identically with what you're trying to change to. It's the first impression that they make. It's your biggest marketing expense. Just make sure it works. Great. Thank you. I have another question. Hi, my name is uh, Dr. Clayton Shu. I'm an acupuncturist who does uh, stroke rehab, and uh, it's based on neuroscience-based uh, research. And I'm um, thank, thank you and grateful to be invited to this, uh, this forum and to meet you. So I heard different levels of... of uh, of complexity in each center, and I was just wondering, what's your criteria when you want to hire a new young staff, and you know, how do you judge that, and how do you, how do you put them through the ropes and train them so that they become a, you know, a great force of nature in your own centers? I think I think everyone probably will have different answers for that because that's what I'm finding I have trouble with as I build my my SWAT acupuncture chiropractic neuro team. So thank you. I don't know how to hire a clinician, but hiring anyone, you've got to make sure they match your values. We have our core values in our office. If you don't mesh with our core values, I don't care how smart you are, what you know, when, when you graduated, how much you know, how good of a clinician you are. If you don't match our values, absolutely, 100%, can't be a good fit. Uh, we've tried that a few times, and pretty much every time that that's, becomes an issue. So I think a, a match on, on morals and values, and then... You know, in a lot of ways, I feel like if you're a good, it, it's about leadership. So, you know, if you can develop your own leadership skills, a lot of times I don't want people with a ton of experience because they often have the experience that they have and, and their, you know, what they bring with that. And, and in many cases, we're doing something a little bit differently. I'd rather just start from scratch and teach it exactly the way I want it to be and develop it from there. I'm going to completely agree with the, the value statement. I mean, if somebody's not rolling in with the same set of values that you have, you're never going to implement your values on top of them, and that'll just be a disaster. So we do a lot of stuff with personality inventories and things like that to figure out if, objectively whether or not they're going to be a good match to begin with. And then from there, 
I'm very, very careful to make sure that anytime somebody's shadowing and they're, they're showing up for a job interview or whatever, I give them an opportunity to demonstrate to me that they don't know what's going on. And that's critical because if they're like, no, I get this. I totally understood what that was. I'm like, explain it to me, you know, and they can't. Um, that person is going to be way more difficult to train than somebody that's actually open enough to be able to say, I have no idea what, what happened. What was that? I've hired and fired enough where I could teach a class called Firing Can Be Fun. And, you know, most associateships end badly, and that's because they start off on the wrong trajectory. The best thing I ever learned was that I never hired someone because they need a job. I hired people because I need work done. And so if I stop the interview at the first moment and say, let me show you what we're building here and why we're all so excited about it, that puts me on the immediate trajectory of the leadership side, and it gives them a sense of where they're going to be mentored to. So we refuse to look at this as a hierarchical model. We get into a mentorship model with our associates right away, and we launch associates to success all the time. But the game here is if I don't like who you are, like the values, if I don't want to help you build what you eventually want your career to, if I can't see myself as accelerating your career, you and I should never be in the same building. It's not fair to you, and it sure isn't fair to our vision. So that's to what we focus on with associates. Your resume only tells me who else was dumb enough to hire you in the past. I want you to know exactly where we're going and see if you can be excited about it. We'll train you on the skill sets. If I could interrupt the panel right there for this, uh, for the first half of the panel there to the left, I have a new question, starting with Dr. Clark. Hi guys, my name is Michael McAuliffe, a uh, student at Life University. I was regarding um, patient at-home exercises. I was wondering if anybody had a strategy that they've noticed works better than others, whether it be printout videos, daily calls from staff, anything like that to increase compliance. I'm going to answer the last question anyway. I'm never hiring an associate, so I'm going to recuse myself from that. So to this at-home exercise thing, uh, I would never have anybody call them. I would never do that. Uh, I also, I mean, occasionally, depending on who it is, I might email them, you know, like at a certain date and say, how's it going, you know. I, you know, I never give them, never let them do anything they haven't already done in the office successfully, Right. Uh, never let them do more than what I've already had. Like if they've done 10 reps or whatever, then they can do 10 reps they can't do anymore, right? That's the big thing is because I sent 10 reps, don't do more than 10. More is not better, right? And guys are the worst at that because they think, well, if 10 is good, 30 must be great, you know? And then they fatigue themselves and they screw up. So a lot of times it's just making sure you're overtly communicating with them. You've demonstrated, they've demonstrated to you that they know how to do it, Right? I don't know, is that answering, you're right under the light, so I can't see. Is that answering your question at all, or what? You know, money is a big motivator, so I usually tell my patients, these are the things that I'm expecting you to do at home. If you don't do them at home, you can come here, and I can watch you do them, and you can pay me to do it. So that works out real well. Um, I'm a big fan of home exercises. Uh, we usually go ahead and do in-house or in-office training, and after they've done it for about three or four times on different visits, then they're pretty capable of doing it. If they choose not to do it and we're not getting where we need to, um, then we go ahead, give them one more chance. If after two chances they're not doing it, we usually release them as patients because I don't want somebody leaving saying they didn't get where they wanted to get to. Um, same thing here. Uh, money, I think, is a big motivator. Uh, usually that and I think education. I think education is really important. I try to explain to the patients this exercise is going to help with this. 
this exercise is going to help with that. And not like your saccade velocities or your finger tapping. That, that's not, that doesn't do anything for the patient. But, you know, if we give them these gaze stability exercises, this is going to help you hold your eyes still. If your eyes don't hold still, your neck muscles are going to get tight. And if your neck muscles get tight, you may get your headaches back. So kind of educating why the exercises are important, I think, is, is a big one. Um, also, the, the financial thing, hey, you spent all this money here. If you don't do your exercises, you'll probably do great for a couple of weeks, then start sliding back because just like anything with plasticity, neuroplasticity, it takes repetition over a period of time for those pathways to be ingrained in your brain. Um, and then we rely really help, heavily on our referrals. Every single patient that we discharge, we discharge them to another doctor with at least 12 visits. So then that doctor becomes their compliance uh, motivator, where it's like, these are your exercises. Go to your doctor, schedule an appointment, have him or her watch you do your exercises, make sure you're doing them well. And I always go back to when I used to play sports. I used to be a varsity pitcher, and I had a pitching coach. And even if you're good, you still hire a coach to make sure that you either stay good or you continue to improve. And my, my pitching coach used to tell me, hey, you're you know, kind of coming down at three quarters instead of overhead, or you're not driving off your back leg. Those are things that I couldn't see that my coach could see. So I always tell them that's what other doctors will do for them. We have one last question, and I can only take two or three responses for this one. All right, how's it going? Uh, thank you guys so much for all the information you've given us today. I'm Leonard Wright. I'm a Parker University student. I graduate in six months, and I'm uh, super excited to dive into this field and become one of your colleagues, but I'm also kind of anxious and nervous to enter the field. What piece of advice do you have for me? I'm going to say start doing neuro. Day one, start doing neuro. Don't try to open a chiropractic office and try, and try to convert that into a neurology practice. That's going to that's set yourself back dramatically. If, if we're trying to build a functional neurology profession, start as a functional neurology professional. As fast as humanly possible, go see the practice that you eventually want to own. Go visit practices and look at them as if, would I like to run this practice as part of my life? It's the best thing I've ever seen any student do. Yeah, I'd, I was going to say find a mentor. Uh, I think that's really important. But the other thing is, in it, and I don't think you straight up said this, but it sounds like you want to lose that anxiousness. Don't ever lose that anxiousness. Every single patient, when I walk into a patient on Monday, I've got butterflies in my stomach because there's somebody who's putting their life at your feet and saying, I've been everywhere, done everything. You're my last hope. That should invoke some anxiousness of you, but should also get you excited. So I would say don't ever lose that sensation because that, I think, will make you a better doctor every single patient you see. And I think that concludes our Path of Excellence. A round of applause for the panel today. Thank you very much for your questions. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on carrickinstitute.com.